0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Food podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rebecca Sharpless about the new edition of 200 Years of Charleston Cooking, published by University of South Carolina Press to which she supplied a new critical introduction. Rebecca Sharpless is professor of history at Texas Christian University. She's author of Fertile Ground, Narrow Choices, Women on Texas Cotton Farms, and Cooking in Other Women's Kitchens, Domestic Workers in the South, 1865 to 1960. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. It is a pleasure to be speaking to you. Thank you, Carrie. I'm delighted to be here. Well, start by telling us a little about your academic and professional backgrounds. How did you get interested in writing about food and especially women's food work?
2: Well, I'm tempted to say that when you talk about women that you're talking about, <clears throat> when you talk about food work that you're talking about women, but we'll, we'll set that aside for a minute. I got interested in food when I was working on my dissertation that became my first book. Um. I wrote about women on cotton farms in central Texas and long backstory on that. But the bottom line is that I covered the period 1900 to 1940. And when I was working on that in the late 1980s and early 1990s, there were still a lot of women around who had lived through that period. Um, hard to believe that was 30 years ago, and they're all dead now. But I did a lot of oral history interviews with women who had either grown up or actually were farm wives on these cotton farms in Central Texas. And the detail that they could talk about food was absolutely remarkable. Um, The foods weren't fancy. By and large, this there were some wealthy people in the region, but a lot of people lived on a basic diet of, that included a whole lot of cornbread. But, and, and if they could get white bread or light bread, as they called it, it was considered a real treat. Lots and lots of biscuits. Um, lots and lots of, of what they called bacon or side meat. But a lot of detail and a lot of interest in food. And I thought, well, gosh, there's something here. So I decided that I was going to do my second book on something about Southern women and food. I'm a Southern Americanist by training. And so I was going to do how women worked on, um, how women made money through food. And I was going to have various chapters and it was going to include domestic work. And one day I was talking to David Perry, my editor at the University of North Carolina Press. And he says, you know, if you can do that domestic worker piece, you will have done something. And I said, well, okay. So away went the caterers, away went the cookbook writers, away went everybody except the domestic workers. And that's where my second book came from. Along the line, however, I have thought a lot about the nature of cookbooks as historical sources, as you have, obviously. Yes. And, um, (laughs) I've done, you know, some writing and some thinking about exactly what kind of a text a cookbook is for a historian. And I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that's how the University of South Carolina folks found me to do this introduction. Yes. And my second
1: question is <laughs> exactly about what you were about to describe. Uh, this is not your first cookbook project. You have a really excellent chapter in the collection, The Larder, uh, Food Studies Methods from the American South, about a church cookbook from Waco, Texas. Um, and I usually assign your essay, Cookbooks as Resources for Rural Research, in my literary cookbook class with uh, food you. studies grad students. Yeah. So th- I love that question about what can we do with cookbooks as a document. Uh, so maybe it's A little bit more about that. How do cookbooks help us learn more about women in history? Uh, What role do cookbooks play in the study of history? Um, I look at them from rhetoric and literature, but I'd love to know what you're thinking.
2: Cookbooks were an easy entree into food studies because they are printed and they exist. (laughs) Yes. You know, if you walk into a library and say, what do you have on women in food? They're going to look at you and say, not much. And that will be right, except for the cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And while cookbooks are not exclusively female, they are largely female. And so they're documents and they exist. And so that's one way to get into them. Um, And it's really fascinating. Cookbooks have been around for literally practically forever. Um, The first cookbook in the United States, the first American cookbook in the United States was printed in the 1790s and it was by a woman from the North. The first cookbooks in the South started in in the 1820s. And in the North, in the early 19th century, there are a bunch of what I don't I don't know what you call them. I call them experts. They're women who made their careers writing domestics domestic work. Women like Catherine Beecher and Lydia Maria Child. Um, they're not Southerners, but they are from the North, and. Um, for example, somebody raised the question the other day about the difference between icing and frosting. Hmm. And I was not able to come up with a definitive answer, but at some point in the 1830s, Lydia Maria Child decided to call the stuff frosting where everybody before that time that I've seen in print had called it icing. Why? I don't know. But, you know, through, through writing of, of Lydia Maria Child, I was able to figure out, okay, that's one of the first written references to the word frosting. Um, After the Civil War, the publication of cookbooks expands hugely. Some of them are these so-called expert cookbooks, but at this time we also get the rise of these incredible documents called community cookbooks. Mm -hmm. And a community cookbook is a project in which some, usually a group or organization, often a church, decides to publish a cookbook, And they get people in the community to contribute recipes. And they're not 100% foolproof because sometimes people donate recipes that they want you to think that Mm -hmm. they're cooking as opposed to what they're actually cooking. But sometimes they really do give us a good, good feel for what people are actually cooking and eating in a certain area at a certain time. They can be trend. They can be trendy. They, I mean, they have a lot of issues, but they are really amazing documents. And from the 1880s through, I would say 1960, this is astonishing outpouring that gives us this really great, great insight, as well as all the commercial code books. Yeah. One reviewer of my
1: book said uh, about the cookbooks that they were nice because they stood still. Uh, And I think about that (laughs) as, you know, comparing to another book that was more about interviews and things that were more amorphous. But those documents that stand still and let us look at them, even though it does take, you know, a trained person to really understand what what's the reality and what is aspirational and then some guessing, some good guesswork. Yeah.
2: And it's interesting too because they can be so very homely. Um, since the rise of digitization with HathiTrust and archive.org, there are so many that are digitized and they're just there, full text, waiting for anybody and everybody. But at the same time, I'm working on a project right now here in North Texas and Texas Woman's University, in particular, and Baylor have cookbooks of which they have the only copy. Mm. So even with digitization, there's still some really rare things out there. And one of the things that I would love to put out there for your listeners is to look for these rare ones, um, you know, and with your grandmother's church, that cookbook comes up, take it. If you don't want <laughs> it, find the library and donate it where other people can use it. That's well said. Because they are really, they're really, really, they can be very rare and very important.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but every person whose grandmother has passed and who's cleaning out the house brings me their box of cookbooks uh, to see if there's anything in it that I should know about.
2: Cool. I I, I recently had an exchange with that. Uh, I'll send you my cookbooks if you want them. No, No, (laughs) I don't collect cookbooks. I would drown (laughs) in them. Find a nice library.
1: Find a nice Um, library. That's a good answer. (laughs) Well, I like a good process discussion. So talk to me about how you write an introduction for a historic cookbook. What kind of research did you do? um, And what were your goals for writing this forward?
2: One of the things I was most interested in is setting things in context for the reader at this particular junction in the life of the world. Mm. So the questions that I ask of the cookbook now might not be what somebody asked 20 years ago and certainly not what the second introducer wrote in 1976. And let me say, this cookbook, is, uh, the, the University of South Carolina Press made the decision to publish this cookbook to republish it. Uh, it was originally published in 1931 by a New York publisher. And then this the South Carolina Press reprinted it in 1976 with an introduction by a local woman, sort of local woman, the woman who'd grown up in Charleston and moved around the world and then come back. And I honestly don't know what led them to publish a 90th, a 90th anniversary edition of it. Um, USC Press has been very active And very, very helpful in reprinting editions of women's writing, including and maybe even particularly cookbooks. So that's kind of been one of their specialties. So all of that is to say I I got this email from the editor asking if I would do it. And, of course, since I love cookbooks as you love cookbooks, Mm -hmm. I I jumped at the chance to do it. So my first step, obviously, was to read what's (laughs) in it. And then start analyzing it. And one, there, there are a couple of different ways to, to go about that. One is to look at the recipes themselves. And the other is look at what I call, I don't know what you call it, I call it the framing material, the introductions, mm-hmm. the head notes, the end notes, uh, anything that sets the book in its time and place. And as it turns out, this book had quite a bit of both. It had it had um, an introduction by the editor, an introduction by the woman whose idea it was, had a note from the recipe tester at the New York newspaper. So there's already a lot going on with it. Um, from that right there from that material we learn that this is a cookbook of what i you might almost call a double sensibility it's about charleston but it is very much filtered through new york um the woman who's sorry, this is the kind of thing you said we would edit out yep <laughs> um, helen so so helen woodward came to charleston to take a vacation in the late 1920s. Now, she was, uh, her parents were Eastern em- Eastern European Jewish immigrants to New York, and she was very much a New Yorker. She had had a career as an early woman in advertising. She had already written an extremely successful autobiography. And she came to, and, but she was married to, to a South Carolinian. So you've got this this double culture there. And so she came to Charleston on a vacation and stayed at the home uh, no, I'm sorry, stayed at a guest house owned by Blanche Rett, one of those Retts. <laughs> and um, they were chatting and she said something about the recipes to Blanche Rett. And Blanche Rhett said, Well, you write books. Why don't why don't you get a you know? why don't you put together a book of our recipes and I'll get all my friends to contribute and we can do this. And so that's, as they tell it, how the book was formed. Mm-hmm. So a New York woman's idea in, in conjunction with a very well connected, highly placed Charleston woman. Um, and I was able to find out a fair amount about both of those women. As well as the technical editor from the New York, um, Letty Gay, from the New York newspaper that was kind of behind the project. So, who are these women? What are they about? Um, and then I look and how this came to be. Um, it's, it's, and it's fascinating because. Northerners have been interested in Southern recipes for a very long time. The first cookbook that I know of um, published in the North about Southern cooking was like 1866. I mean, really early after the Civil War. So there's always been this Northern fascination with Southern recipes is, here we say, exotic. (laughs) And people argue that Southern cuisine is the most easily recognized regional cuisine in the United States. And I think that's probably correct. So, but a New York publisher publishing recipes from Charleston. Um, so looking at that, looking at those then, and then I looked at the recipe contributors and there used to be this old joke that a woman got her name in print only when she was born, when she married, and when she died. Cookbooks have been the exception to that, mm-hmm. even though there are <laughs> still some who are anonymous. But there, these, cook, these recipes come in batches, and with Blanche, Sally, Rhett being so well-connected, they are from the creme de la creme of Charleston society and uh, what they are trying to do i i argue in the, in the introduction is that they are trying to make um, they're part of this huge wave of nostalgia for the old south and charleston in particular because when charleston was established in 1670 it's a major seaport in the south and and when they get rice going, they um, have enormous wealth, enormous wealth, and huge rice plantations staffed by hundreds of slaves, hundreds of enslaved people. And so the fortunes made by the white enslavers are quite fabulous. They built amazing houses, of which you can still see a number in the Low Country. And through that Port of Charleston, they can get any food that is available in the Western Hemisphere. Mm. If you had money in Charleston, you could get it. Really, really phenomenal. And virtually all the cooking done by enslaved Africans, some of whom attained extremely high levels of, of culinary excellence. And um, but there was a civil war.
1: <laughs>
2: and after the civil war, the rice plantations died and Charleston became a backwater.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So there have been a couple of really good books written by this, um, by Stephanie Yule and by um, Ethan Keitel and, and um, Blame Roberts. But the people of Charleston determined very carefully that they were going to capitalize on this storied past and they were going to bring back the stories of Charleston's glory. And by golly, they did it. Charleston <laughs> became a tourist mecca in the early 20th century when people could travel easily there by boat or train or car. Mm. And so you start getting these influxes of tourists and this cookbook published in 1931 is is smack in the middle of that sort of sensibility they the recipes are often attributed not even to a person but to a specific plantation yeah. or they will say such and such from wagmala plantation and and I and I, frankly, don't know how to pronounce all these Charleston proper names. And they <laughs> had their, their oddnesses. So any Charlestonians who happen to hear this, I'm really sorry <laughs> if I butcher your names. Um, not from there. Which, you know, I had to make sure to, that the cookbook, auth, the, that the editors knew, say, hey, I'm a historian. I'm from Texas. Are you sure you want me? And they said, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Well, your
1: introduction is especially and rightfully, you've already kind of pointed out this, uh, critical of the ways that the cookbook erases the contributions of enslaved people. Uh, And when it does offer credit, it's usually patronizing, uh, pretty racist in its depictions of African-American domestic cooks. Um, You have two beautiful sentences that I want to quote to you. (laughs) You wrote that it's a book of white nostalgia, not black. And then the final words of the foreword could not be any clearer. 200 years of Charleston cooking stands as a double monument to the rich foodways of the low country and the efforts of white Charlestonians to put a pretty face on white supremacy. Uh, So talk specifically about some of those moments in the cookbook when this is most on display to you, this um, kind of pretty face of white supremacy.
2: One of well, let me back up and Mm -hmm. say that, whatever the shortcomings of the Charleston people, the most egregious language in the cookbook is not from Charlestonians. It's from the food editor in New York Mm -hmm. um, who just has this, she was a native of Indiana and she just has this idea. She she falls square into every trope about magical African-Americans and their cooking ability that, that it's possible to. And so I find that exceptionally interesting and troubling because it proves how widespread this stuff was. But now in terms of the Charlestonians, it's an interesting question and one that I've gotten into some fairly heated discussions with with professional cooks about, and that is who owns cookery? Mm -hmm. Is it the person who actually does the labor? Is it the person who buys the ingredients? Is it the person who owns the kitchen and the stove? Where is the intellectual property Mm -hmm. in all of these things? And my take on it always is, uh, you might find this weaselly, but it's somewhere in the middle, which is Mm -hmm. that it's a fusion. Mm -hmm. Southern cooking is very much a fusion cooking between, Af- between Native American, which does not get nearly enough credit, and Anglos who own most of the capital and, um, and provided a lot of the basis through European recipes, particularly English recipes, mm-hmm. and the African Americans who had what, what they beautifully call Walk presence. It was their hands who who measured the measured the salt in the palm. Their hands who did the stirring. Their senses that knew. And I'm sorry, I'm falling into that sort of sensory mm-hmm. that I don't I don't want to go there because Lord knows an African American cook is certainly capable of the most complicated chemistry recipe in the world. I don't want to. I don't Mm -hmm. want to fall into that trap at all. But the person standing in front of the stove is, or in front of the fireplace, has the most physical investment with Mm -hmm. the cooking. So where does ownership of all that come down? Mm -hmm. It's incredibly, incredibly complicated. And at the base of Charleston, when you look at that incredible wealth, Why was that wealth available? It was available because thousands and thousands and thousands of Africans were kidnapped from Africa, brought to South Carolina, taught white people how to raise rice, and then spent their days in the rice fields, whether it was hoeing or flooding or draining or sickling or drying or, you know, whatever. It was black people who did all that. So, the entire economic basis of the antebellum South is based on African American labor. You cannot get out of that. And of course, there's no acknowledgement of that whatsoever. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and so your introduction focuses a lot on those recipe contributors who would have had less attention and credit uh, and royalties than Rhett and Gay who were kind of doing the writing. Um, So uh, start with William Dees and Sally Washington. They're named in the book. Um, Who are they? What is their role in creating the collection of recipes? Uh, And then maybe what are some of the problems with the way the book handles them? Okay.
2: Um, William Dees was... Interestingly enough a male who cooked for the Rett family in their wonderful house on the battery for a long time and he was an accomplished cook i am a, i assume that he is descended from uh, from people enslaved by the D's by the white D's family who owned quite a number oh and i use the word owned advisedly who not what the nomenclature for that is now, <laughs> but they were enslaved by the Dees family,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, and he had had some formal training and he was a very good cook. So, there are I think 20 odd recipes by him, and they are fairly typical southern, but they're also. Some pretty up to date ones. There are a lot of salad recipes, uh, a number of recipes using cream cheese, <laughs> which was not very common in the South in the twentieth century, early twentieth century. Um, he was a good cook. Now, Sally Washington is. Also, very interesting, I'm not 100% sure she, who she was. There were, there were several Sally Washingtons living in Charleston in the late 1920s. But I suspect that she was a woman uh, who was living with her daughter. And her recipes are interesting. And, oh, and she was um, Helen Woodward's cook while, while Woodward was in Charleston. So a short-term gig. But her recipes are more typically low country okra and shrimp and things like that. Whereas um, Deez's could have been plucked, some of his could have been plucked out of the lady's home journal and probably were because that's what a good cook does. Mm-hmm. A good cook reads other people's recipes and then incorporates those people's work into their own. At least those of us, you know, people say, Are you a cook? And I say, No, I'm a recipe follower. yeah that's about right (laughs) so you take other people's recipes and you make them your own and I suspect that's what William Dees did the ones that frustrate me are the ones whose names we don't know Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and there are a couple of references in articles that aren't in the book and a reference or two in the book to the quote old colored cooks and to cooks who gave up their recipes only reluctantly because they were their family secrets and so on. Um, no idea who those women were.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No clue. You know, um, I might be able to go back through the census, re- through the manuscript census for 50 years or so. And, Sometimes they'll have the word cook as uh, as the woman's profession, but a lot of times cooks did other things too. They mm-hmm. Diaper babies, and they swept corners, and they did all kinds of things, and so they might just be listed as servant. So it's hard to know, and those are the, the people, particularly the women, um, that I really, really wish I knew who they yeah. were and that they could get proper credit for these dishes that they cooked for their white employers. Mm-hmm. Well, you also note some other rec-
1: uh, other sources for recipes from the those white women of Charleston's elite families. Uh, who are some of those biggest contributors from that class uh, and what are their recipes like?
2: Let me make sure. Right. Let me make sure. I understand your question. Are you talking about the Charleston women of the 20th century? Or are you talking about the earlier cookbooks? Um, uh, the the women, the actual live women. <laughs> okay, thanks. Well, there are a couple. Again, there, there <clears throat> these these sources may stand still, but they that doesn't mean that they tell you everything that you want to know, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't go back, and you can't ask them questions. Okay, the largest cluster, and again, I may be mispronouncing the names, but the Harlston simons family has a large group of recipes, and the thing that is unknown is that um, Elizabeth Harlston, who lived for most of the 19th century, she was born in 1801 and died in 1890, had a manuscript, of re- a handwritten manuscript of recipes, and... You know, don't we wish we had that manuscript? Mm-hmm. Don't we wish we knew where it was? And she handed it down to her niece, and then her niece handed it down to her daughter. And so a lot of the recipes, some of the recipes have Elizabeth's name. Some of them have the name of the plantation, which is Bosis, Bassis. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. um, B-O-S-S-I-S. And so there are 70 recipes in the cookbook from that cluster of family, but I don't know how many of them are from Elizabeth's manuscript, and I don't know how many of them came in because the nieces read Ladies' Home Journal. (laughs) (laughs) They brought in recipes from the outside, and then... The other cluster is the Sally family, of which uh, Blanche, Sally Rhett, the editor, was a member. And they were really remarkable. They, they were not from Charleston. She married into the cream of Charleston, and the Reds are their own thing. But um, they were actually from the upcountry, and there were 12 children, 10 girls. And one of them, um, really, really interesting, um, Ida... Got an undergraduate degree, and then she got a, an MA, and then she got a law degree, and then she did everything except the, the dissertation for a PhD in economics from the University of South Carolina, all the while being married and having kids. And so you have this group of sisters who are teachers. So it's interesting because you have Blanche, who's married into this umpteenth Charleston family. And then her sister, who are sisters who are teachers, and then Ida, who is blowing the top off the <laughs> curriculum at the University of South Carolina, and they're still all cooking recipes and talking about the old south.
1: Yeah, Ida was my favorite too. I was hoping you were going to talk about her.
2: <laughs> well, and uh, the University of South Carolina has some interesting stuff on Ida because she was she was number one in her law school class, and so there's some things commemorating her at the USC Law School, apparently. Oh, very cool. I was
1: also interested in Lise Dawson, who's a local restaurateur. Yes. Anybody else yes. who stands out as interesting?
2: And I, I know I, I know very little about her. Um, Lise, apparently, is a typical Charleston first name. I haven't seen it anyplace else, and I think it probably comes from a family name, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, she had this this inn and restaurant called Villa Margarita. And it was white elite and the food was excellent. And I, it's one of those things where I wish I knew more about her. And there's not not I was not able to find a great deal about her except that she ran this astonishing restaurant for for several decades so you know even even with the internet and all that we have, there's still a lot of silences around women's mm-hmm. lives yeah, and it would be interesting to go to Charleston and see what could be known about her mm-hmm. and especially well of course it's it's the house the villa margarita was named for the house which was built in the 1890s it was not antebellum but it was um it has it has a long um Sultry story, shall we say, of its own.
1: (laughs) So a cookbook introduction, especially one of these, uh, is exceptionally short. (laughs) So was there things that you learned
2: about that maybe you didn't have time or room to write about here? Well, I want to give a shout out to the USC Press because they actually did give me a few extra hundred words. Oh, good. talk about the thing we were just talking about, which are the clusters of the women who are in there. I think I probably could have done more with talking about the food itself. On the other hand, the recipes are there. What do they really need me to talk about? <laughs> you know? Um, there, and one of the things that, that I think is very interesting about the cookbook is that there are recipes that are distinctly Charlestonian um, things like shrimp and grit, or, or Yeah, that have Charlestonian backgrounds like shrimp and grits or I don't see, I don't even know how to pronounce pilau, P-I-L-A-U, the rice dishes. Those are quintessentially Charlestonian. Um, So a discussion of the actual food itself. Now, I will give a shout out. There is a professor at the University of South Carolina named David Shields, Mm -hmm. and he does phenomenal work on the actual foods. And he and a South Carolina cook have a gorgeous, gorgeous book on South Carolina food that will be out, I believe, in October. So a shout out for that to watch for David Shields' new book. And uh, maybe I'm going to call him. I'm going to get them on the pod. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. But they were kind enough to send me a, an e-edition to look at, and it is it is just phenomenal. It's by a chef named Kevin Mitchell and David Shields called Taste the South, South Carolina's signature foods, recipes, and their stories, and it'll be out in October. Fantastic. A gorgeous book, and I I sent a message to several of my South Carolina friends um, my BFF lives in Spartanburg
1: mm-hmm.
2: and said, "Hey, you want to put this on your list for Chris to give for Christmas presents <laughs> Every South Carolinian's gonna want a copy oh for sure yeah. but um, so what else in terms of talking about the food? I think that and uh, yeah there's there's a lot to be written about the culinary history of Charleston itself, although David has done a good job of covering a lot of it in his work. But I can't emphasize how much Charleston was. It was a something Mm -hmm. in the antebellum period. And if Charlestonians are are overly impressed, seem overly impressed with, with their mythical past, It was, uh, as Lori Glover's book on Eliza Pinckney really depicts beautifully, it was an exceptional place of white privilege. Mm, mm -hmm. It was if you were going to be a privileged, rich white Southerner, Charleston was a really good place to be.
0: Mm.
2: And um, so, more of that sort of thing,
1: probably.
2: Well, with all these kind of critiques and caveats
1: that you've noted throughout, what do you think is the biggest contribution of this book now? What what can we still do with it or learn from it? Is it an oddity or is it something useful or what do you think we can do now? Well,
2: first of all, it's a cookbook. And one of the wonderful things about 20th century cookbooks is that for the most part, you can cook from them. mm mm-hmm. Yeah. You and I can take any one of these recipes in our, in our 2021 kitchens, and we can produce these. The ingredients we recognize, uh, thanks to the home economists at the New York newspaper, the, um, the measurements are all standardized. Some of them give temperatures and some don't. At, mm-hmm. in the 1920s early 1930s most stoves had um, most stoves had thermometers mm-hmm. they may not all have had thermostats you know Got where, it. where you just say okay i want 450 and you hit the button and it gives you 450 they may not have had that but in, so, and and it's not too hard there there are things on the internet so if they special if they stipulate a slow oven you can look it up and figure out that probably means about 225 fahrenheit mm-hmm. quick oven 400 to 450 but again most of these recipes are from ingredients we recognize and processes that we recognize and we can do this so that's the, the thing i would do is i would pick it up and i would I haven't. <laughs> but if I were curious about it, I'd pick it up and I'd cook something out of it. Sure. And it and it would probably turn out just fine. Mm-hmm. Now, what we do with it culturally, I'm not sure, um, yeah. except to note, this is five years before Gone with the Wind. Okay. So... I think it helps set the stage for that which we are still in response to so much. So yes. much. This this lost cause, southern romanticism. This is squarely, squarely in that camp.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and when you I think putting it in that timeline kind of helps to explain a little bit about what you were saying about northern sensibilities and who the the audience really is, right? It might not be that white charlestonians needed this book, but it has this other audience. Yeah.
2: And white charlestonians may have needed this book to make themselves feel better.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I
2: yeah. mean seriously. Yeah. Seriously, but but the north and again, you know, um Keitel and Roberts and, and Ewell and other authors are, are very good about nailing this of Northerners getting their jollies looking at looking at the South. their mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, I say, complicit? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, the last words of your introduction are these: "Cook and enjoy these recipes, remembering the black hands that made them possible." Uh so talk a little bit more about that. So you 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 want us to pick it up and use it. How do we do that? What are you imagining uh a reader could do that would be respectful, you know, without participating in the white supremacy work that was originally intended to be done by this book? Um what does that look like to you?
2: That's a good question and I don't know that I really have an answer for it <laughs> other than just be mindful.
1: It's an attitude.
2: It is an attitude it really is. Mm-hmm. It really is an attitude of respect. Um, beautiful, abundant recipes carry cultural freight with them, and we we cook them out of our abundance, and we share them with people we love out of our abundance and out of our love for those people. But I mean, it's part of the conundrum. It's compounds the conundrum of being human and consuming, period. Mm -hmm. You know, we're mammals, we have to eat. But how we do it and how we think about it and the forms of thankfulness and gratitude and reciprocity that really should go along with our consumption of food Mm -hmm. really extend, I think, into these cultural realms.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, something about storytelling, which of the stories are you going to repeat when you serve this dish? The one that Blanche Rhett wrote in front of it, or the one that uh, Dr. Sharpless explained in much better context?
2: Well, (laughs) you know, most, most people will prefer the Blanche Rhett. It's much prettier. It is very poetic. And and it's, and it's easier. Mm -hmm. It's just easier unless you're black. Right. Exactly. In my book that's coming out next year, <clears throat> there's a picture of a child with a disease called pellagra. Coincidentally, it's, it's a child in South Carolina. It's just a coincidence. Uh, pellagra is a niacin deficiency disease that causes, well, it's, it's, the people are typically starving and they have skin problems and they have dementia and it will eventually result in death. And it took a lot of work on part of nutritionists to figure out that it was from eating too much corn that it had the nutrients stripped out of it by industrial processing. But there's this this photo of this child, um, with its thin, with its emaciated limbs and patchy skin, and and I posted it on social media and said, "Bet they're not going to use this one for the cover." Mm. Because that's not what people want when they pick up a book about food most of the time. They want to read about the abundance and they want to read about the love. And here I am poking holes in that at every every (laughs) chance I get along the way.
1: Yes, read my next book. That's what it's all about. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I finish writing it soon. That would be nice. Uh, I do want to ask you one more question to sort of speculate a little bit. I know that you were invited to write the introduction, so you didn't propose this project. Uh, so it might be speculation. Uh, but why do you think now? What is the occasion for a new edition? You you kind of talked about it as not around century marker. Um, what do you think? Is it just that Charleston food is hot?
2: No idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what i do know from from googling a little bit is that they had previously asked a very very well-known south carolina cook to write the introduction and for whatever reason she backed out i I've, I've seen a mock-up of the cover with her name on it mm. and um I think it would have been diff- quite the introduction would have been quite different and as I, I I may have said at the beginning when they contacted me I was like I you know I'm a historian I'm not a food writer <laughs> I I don't I don't make things pretty
1: right Yeah. I wondered if it had, you know, there was the top chef season of Charleston was in 2017. Uh, Sean Brock, uh, Rodney Scott, BJ Dennis. These are some kind of major uh, Mike Lada, you know, big award-winning Charleston uh, chefs. Mm -hmm. And it, it is quite a tourist destination even now. It is. For food, certainly. Yes. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Well, The last question, um, no, two questions. (laughs) And you talked about this earlier too. Are there other out of print historical cookbooks that need this kind of treatment? They need a scholarly critical introduction. Uh, I know how much I owe to Karen Hess, um, who's done this work with Amelia Simmons and Mary Randolph. And, uh, so now I'm asking for some homework here, Dr. Sharpless, what should we do next?
2: There are any number of cookbooks, of course. Um, of course, you know, the, the practical part of me says, oh, there, you know, a lot of these are available full text on the Internet. They don't need to be reprinted. But there are. But if you get to it's a little awkward to cook from something, something in Hotha Trust, mm-hmm. although it's certainly possible. It's very possible to get to those old texts. Um, you mentioned Karen Hess. Her Martha Washington's Book of Cookery is an a. Ast- Astonishing piece of work in the end. It will forever be my model of how a cookbook should be annotated and discussed. Her thoroughness was just her thoroughness and her knowledge Mm
1: -hmm.
2: were just irreproachable. So I don't know. And it would be interesting to talk to various presses in this day of the internet, I wonder about the future of reprinted historic texts. Mm-hmm. If you can get to something for free on High the Trust, are you going to buy a print book? Well, obviously, at least two of the presses that I, that I am familiar with... Um, South Carolina being one of them, have decided, yes, that they want to continue this. So that may be a question for, for the professional mm-hmm. press people as opposed to me. <laughs> um, are their cookbooks just just lying there waiting as a Southernist, Again, props to the University of South Carolina Press. They reprinted the four antebellum Southern cookbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, the Virginia housewife, the South Carolina housewife, the Kentucky housewife, which is delightful. The the writer was a woman named Lettuce Bryan, and I just wanted to go have separate Lettuce Bryan's house. (laughs) Her her sense of humor and her practicality, I just really, really liked her. And then there's a fourth one um, written by a woman called The Lady of Charleston, and South Carolina has reprinted all of those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know they've been out they've been in print for a good while probably since the early 1980s so maybe they need looking at again but if the editor is you mentioned you know the editor is the quality of Karen Hess they don't need to be redone because she covered it
1: <laughs> right yeah yeah and there's something about that packaging of a critical introduction with the book that i think i still i still want as a consumer and as a scholar Um,
2: well in the annotations particularly on the early ones um i've spent a fair amount of time looking at 17th century recipes and there are things i do not have a clue what they are (laughs) and without the work of people like hess and uh, elizabeth david and others I would be busy Googling because <laughs> the vocabulary has changed. The ingredients have changed. Um, for example, when's the last time you cooked anything with musk? With musk? Never. <laughs> yes, me neither. I'm not even sure I could find it if I needed it. So, yeah, if you want to cook with uh, seasoning made from the glands of a deer, there you go. Yeah, musk and ambergris and all those kind of animal based spices that were that were typical among the elite in the 17th century. Without those editors and annotators, we would be lost for sure. Well, let's talk about your next project. You said it's coming out next year. Uh, Mm -hmm. Say a little bit about what that's going to be. It is a book called Grain and Fire, A History of Baking in the American South being published by the University of North Carolina Press and is slated to come out next May. Oh, that's great. So it's, um, it starts pre-contact and goes up to today, so it's kind of a baggy monster. <laughs> but uh, it, it looks at baking as a way that people make sense of their worlds. Um, really, until after the Civil War Baked goods were more a matter of sustenance than they were the sweets that we think about. People got a lot of their calories from from grain and particularly from bread. And so looks at all that and who ate what? The question of who ate corn and who ate wheat flour is throughout the book after the Europeans get here. Um, Before that, it was a question of, who ate red oak acorns, who ate white oak acorns, and who got to eat chestnuts. Wow. Okay. So, and, and of course, corn, corn, and more corn. <laughs> um, the beautiful grain that it is. <laughs> so it looks at, um, it looks at grain, it looks at milling, it looks at, recipes and baking and ingredients and relationships. And it it was a lot of fun.
1: That's wonderful. Great. Well, I will absolutely be calling you for uh, a copy of that and to talk about it again when it comes out in May. So uh, Rebecca Sharpless is professor of history at Texas Christian University. We've been talking to her about uh, the critical introduction to 200 years of Charleston cooking out now from South Carolina university press. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I loved catching up with you again from our old days at TCU. And thanks for, for talking to me today. Thank you, Carrie. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening.